In this interview, I'm joined by Michael Taft, Maverick meditation teacher, best-selling author, host of the Deconstructing Yourself podcast, and founder of the Alembic Meditation Community. Michael recounts his lifelong meditation journey, his initial reluctance to teach meditation, the writing of the Mindful Geek, and his divergence from Shinzen Young. Michael reveals his troubled upbringing, crippling teenage anxiety, and intense experimentation with LSD and the occult. Michael also shares a transformative mystical experience in Japan, describes his practice of classical Hindu Tantra, and details experiences of seeing other dimensional entities in daily life. So without further ado, Michael Taft. Michael Taft, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Steve. Or should I call you Guru? Uh, yes, Steve's fine. I've been okay. called worse. I've been called worse than both, I can assure you. Yes. Um, yeah, it's so, so great to be talking to you uh, today, Michael. I'm, I'm super excited about this. And I'm sure um, there won't be a listener among my listeners or viewers that's not aware of who you are. Uh, your podcast, Deconstructing Yourself. Fabulous podcast. I think one of the most uh, famous and widely, widely listened to podcasts in, in, the, in the field. And really amazing. So I'm, I'm excited to uh, put you on the other side of the, end yes. of the thing. Uh, I'm excited to be on the other side. It's fun to, to do both parts of the system. Mm -hmm. And of course, everyone I think will also know, perhaps if, if they don't, then they'll soon find out that Michael's also a very highly regarded meditation teacher working, from what I understand, mainly one-on-one, -on -one, um, but also uh, groups uh, in group contexts also. So we're going to learn about that. And an interesting life too. You know, I was rereading your book, Mindful Geek, which you published in 2015, seven years ago. That's, that's a good amount of time to look back on, on a book. Now, I'm wondering, when you reflect on that, what were you trying to accomplish with that book, both in terms of yourself as a teacher and, and who it was for? And when you look back at it seven years later, how do you see it now? Have your views changed since then in any way? Um, would you write it differently today? Or, or I'm just curious if you might reflect on that book. It was very popular, of course, Mindful Geek. Yeah, that was a, um, a fun book to write. I spent basically three months in local coffee shops, back when you could go to coffee shops, <laughs> and uh, uh, just writing away and doing tons of research. And I was working with several uh, neuroscience researchers who were checking all the facts and it was great. Um, I enjoyed writing that and the to answer your question, the um, view or vision of uh, why or for whom I was writing that book was um, very specific. I had been, as you know, uh, Steve, I'm sure a student of Shinzen Young for many, many years. And um, Shinzen had authorized me to teach long ago, like almost at this point going on 20 years ago. And uh, for a long time, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to teach because I had been in a very serious guru tradition for a really long time. And so to me, it was, I don't know, presumptuous to, you know, take the role of the teacher or whatever. Uh, but then uh, a large number of people where I was living in LA at the time were requesting that 
I teach them. They wanted to learn meditation and, and they just needed someone to show them how. And after a while, it felt like refusing because uh, to, to show them how to meditate was much more presumptuous than just going ahead and doing it. It, it just seemed ridiculous after a while to keep refusing. So I started teaching them, and, and um, which was great. It was a fabulous group. That was a, actually a 12-step group. And um, so uh, even though I was not myself in 12-step, I started teaching a, quite a large, really fun Los Angeles 12-step uh, group. It was a wonderful sangha. And um, <clears throat> several, of those, several of those people have gone on to become teachers themselves. Um, but uh, anyway, when I started working with them, the, the thing that seemed most salient and uh, most applicable to their situation and that uh, I felt the most confident in showing them how to do was the Shenzhen style material. And I, I, was, I was sticking pretty close to what I would call uh, Paka Shenzhen teaching, right? So uh, pure, clean, uh, uh, Orthodox, so to speak, in quotes, with a with a smiley face on it, you know, uh, the material, and um, and so I got really comfortable te teaching that to groups and in public, and I started doing that also at companies and and corporations and so on. And um, even though my own experience is, you know, coming originally from a very different place and, and includes a lot of other different kind of stuff, I thought, well this sort of sliver of how mindfulness can be de delivered in a totally secular context to people who uh, are, you know, fully engaged in life, not trying to be meditators or necessarily on a spiritual search, but they want to gain these benefits. This way of teaching really talks to them and they actually were uh, reported getting a lot out of it. And also, as I say, some people then did go on to engage in quite a, quite a deep and serious spiritual search uh, of those people I was teaching. So it seemed like basically um, there, this particular um, view of teaching and way of communicating and sort of like package of materials um, fit together really nicely in something that I would call, you know, geeky mindfulness or, you know, kind of a secular mindfulness. And, um, and so that because I had spent so much time kind of working with that those teachings in that way, it really made sense to put it in a book. And so it's, it's one particular sliver of material that you know, as a teacher, you develop your material more and more, uh, you iterate and iterate, and you see what lands with people and what doesn't land with people and how to frame it and all that. So all that material had been so worked for so many years that it was relatively, I mean, writing a book is never easy, <laughs> but compared to some, that was relatively easy and actually kind of fun to put out. Uh, on the other hand, again, to answer the other part of your question, it's certainly just a sliver of how I think about things and how I might talk about things depending on uh, 
you know, who's listening or what we're talking about. So it's intended for a very specific audience. And as I say in the introduction to the book, you know, it's not like this is anti-religion or something. It's it's just aimed at people who, you know, like if I just, for example, if I would go and teach at Google, which I've done a bunch, if you, especially back then, if I even said the word Buddha or something, like, a, four, a quarter of the room would get up and leave, you know, like just at the mention of, of religion, you know. And so I was like this, I'm not in any way against, obviously, any of the religion or spiritual teachings in their spiritual context, but there's a lot of people who will never, ever, ever listen to it in that format. They just won't. And so uh, I wanted that book to be entirely outside of that uh, context. So it's got its own little niche. Mm. And that's been a that's been a fun, uh, you know, multi decade exploration. Mm. Oh, very interesting. Would you say that the sort of approach outlined in Mindful Geek is still represents still how you'd work with that particular slice of the population if you were going into Google or so. Would it look a lot like that? Or have you also evolved that particular uh, slice of your material? It would look a lot, it would be recognizably that material, but I also have done so much more work with companies and corporations. And now instead of LA, I'm in, you know, I've been in the Bay Area for over 10 years. So lots and lots and lots of uh, tech corporations. So it, it has changed to some extent. Yeah, it's a, it's a little less Shinzen, you know, uh, unified mindfulness and that has gone off in its own direction. And I, I've kind of veered slightly in a different direction, even though, again, they, uh, the, the two languages could speak to each other without too much trouble. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's evolved since then, for sure. Mm. Yeah, I get that sense from you and from your output that there is this iteration process, this evolving process. And in, in your bio, you just you describe yourself. The first adjective is maverick, maverick meditation yeah. teacher. Yeah. So it's Michael Taft. <laughs> Michael Taft is a maverick is the first thing. So that definitely speaks to that. You know, I, I, I want to circle back to the to your biography and and and, and these things. But now we're, while we're on the subject. Could you talk a little bit about that divergence? First divergence. The divergence you pointed to from, say, Unified Mindfulness, the, the name of the current name of Shinzen system, for example, and the ways in which you're going from Paka Shinzen, as you put it, <laughs> to, you know, this, this uh, divergence. Could you, are you, um, could you identify some of the key, I suppose, uh, differences there and, and what's behind them? Oh, it's basically um, that Shinzen iterates as well. And, you know, he encourages iteration. He encourages me to iterate. So since we're both iterating uh, independently, things, you know, just different areas of interest come up. We're working with different populations sometimes and so on. So, you know, kind of emphasize different points and go in different directions. I've certainly taken my material in a, you know, much more strongly in a non-dual direction. Um, in quotes, but uh, a non-dual direction. And even though Shenzhen includes all that and talks about that uh, even more recently than, than he did, that's not usually 
uh, considered like where his stuff starts. And uh, for a long time now, I've been starting there. So again, even though it's interoperable, um, we just kind of uh, uh, pursued our uh, separate angels of inspiration in mildly different directions. You know, again, we talk a lot. It's not like there's some kind of uh, uh, communication gap there. Uh, it's just different stuff we're into. Mm. No, very interesting. Yeah, perhaps we'll talk later about how one starts with the non-dual. Of course, depending on who you listen to, non-dual sometimes seen as the end, right? To the highest. Uh, sure. To start sure. there is very interesting indeed. I don't know if we should talk about that now or later. I'm thinking later. Um, Whatever you'd like, Steve. I'm, I'm, I'm at your service. You don't have to make those decisions today. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, let's uh, go back to your biography then. Um, Surely the most fascinating part of this program. <laughs> well, I'm very fascinated actually, by, by your life. You've had a, a remarkably interesting life. And um, you said of your childhood, there were some people in my family that were going through some very serious mental health issues when I was a very small child. And that affected me in some pretty predictable and extremely unpleasant ways. So that I, that. It was true, but... I... <laughs> so that by the time I was in high school, I was experiencing immobilizing anxiety attacks all the time. Yeah. So I'm wondering if, if you could say a little about your, your childhood, your upbringing in that context. Um, I think it's uh, very interesting and relevant, and you've used it in this way, actually, to frame how you and why you got into meditation and what it was you got out of meditation. So I've heard you frame your childhood. You're asking, where did you say that? You framed your childhood in that way before as part of the arc of your own, you know, this is what I got out of meditation, sort of, sort of, uh, sort of angle. So I'm, I'm curious about your childhood. What, what was the, what was the context? Yeah, so um, it's interesting. In if you're doing like uh, traditional Hindu stuff, they sometimes talk about the various reasons that someone would get involved in spirituality. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna mess up the list, but some of them are, for example, uh, desire for the truth. Okay, yeah, you know, you just want to know the truth, a pure desire for that. Another one is a kind of naturally open devotional heart where you just feel tremendous devotion towards God. Um, and, and there's a few others, but one of them is just because you're in pain. And they always say, and that's the most common, <laughs> you know, by far. Uh, uh, there's not so many people bored with like this tremendous devotion or this burning desire for truth, uh, but lots of people are in pain. So I'm one of those uh, initially, you know, you know, just suffering a lot. And, you know, uh, childhood was a completely, um, from the outside, completely normal Midwest American, you know, uh, family situation, like a mom and a dad and a, a bunch of kids and, and uh, everyone is well employed and, and doing their jobs and all that. But um, uh, when I was very young, like a year old, um, um, my mother's best friend was killed by a drunk driver. So sudden, really tragic accident. The friend was pregnant at the time. I mean, it's just a horrible, horrible um, event. And, and for many, many reasons, um, 
having to do with grief and lack of support and all kinds of stuff. My mom uh, uh, entered a 10-year serious depression and with tremendous difficulty. And the rest of the family tried to cope with that and, and wasn't doing too well. And so I'm, you know, one when this starts. And uh, so there's there's no blame on anybody in this situation, you know, except for maybe the drug driver. But even he was a World War II vet who probably was traumatized out of his mind. Um, <clears throat> he survived the accident. Um, but uh, um, so there's no blame there, but it really made uh, my earliest childhood uh, a scene of a lot of really uh, obviously painful, difficult, terrifying, upsetting stuff all the time. And um, uh, a real lack of support. Like sometimes in my bios, you'll see, I'll, I'll say like, I'm, uh, I was raised by, raised by wolves. And, um, and because I felt like my, my chief support there was the family dog, you know, who I, I got along with tremendously well. And, you know, spent a lot of time together with her. And my brothers and sisters were wonderful and helped me as much as they could for being other little children, also going through the same difficult situation. So it was just a mess and nobody's fault. But uh, um, coming out of that into puberty and so on, uh, I, I was not well equipped to, to um, smoothly handle, you know, uh, high school and so on. It was just rough. And so um, spent a lot of time attempting to figure out how to uh, just deal with what was going on internally. And like, like you mentioned, I was having really bad anxiety attacks, um, which if you never had the kind where you just can't even move, then like literally you're so stuck, you can't stand up kind of thing. Um, then maybe you're, you, you don't know what I'm talking about, one listeners, but if you've had that kind, then you know what I'm talking about. It's an extreme level of anxiety. And, um, and, uh, and so I'm using immobilizing in a literal sense. Um, and so eventually, uh, you know, I'm, my mom's a librarian. I was taught to read almost before I could walk. And so, um, I remember, uh, organizing her card catalog is one of the first thing I learned to do. So alphabetize a card catalog, <laughs> uh, practically in diapers, not literally, but really, really early on. And, um, and so I was just reading and reading and reading and really interested in everything. And back then you could get, uh, you still can, but back then there wasn't actually a lot of meditation literature available at all, especially kind of like popularly and uh, available. But there were, this is the 70s, so there were magic books. And so like from Llewellyn, the publisher's still around, right? You could get, you know, astral travel book or whatever. And it was probably in an astral travel book or something where I, they were talking about how to do yoga nidra. They didn't call it that, but how to do a progressive relaxation meditation before you did your astral travel. And so um, I started doing progressive relaxation meditation and couldn't believe, uh, you know, how positive and powerful and uh, 
helpful the effects were and what a relief it was to be able to on purpose uh, you know calm down basically uh, you know regulate my own anxiety and quickly I kind of extrapolated from there on my own without the book and understood like had some insights into how thinking about anything more than 24 hours away made it a lot worse so I dialed back my thinking into the present moment and etc cetera, etc cetera, and really got a handle on the anxiety and from there though was hooked right once you find pain relief <laughs> you know wow this really works it's not kidding around i'm not imagining that i feel much better i really do feel much better so i got very involved in meditation in a, a bunch of different traditions from there yeah that's very fascinating indeed did you find that that meditation practice I don't know if the word would be cured the anxiety in the sense that it made the arising of anxiety either go away or less common, or was it, did you find a way of effectively dealing? It was more of a palliative, yeah. Um, at least when it arose, I could, um, between that meditation and kind of like thought hygiene, I could really keep myself uh, much more relaxed and, and down-regulate once it was upregulated. took a lot longer to um, figure out how to, you know, um, really cure the anxiety, you know, um, that's a, that's a larger kettle of fish, but it does, it did eventually happen. Um, but I'll tell you, even the palliative version was a miracle for me at the time. You mentioned they're reading books published by Llewellyn, magic books, astral travel and so on. Were you quite heavily into that stuff? Did you experiment with things like astral travel, lucid dreaming, I guess, the sorts of things that those sorts of books uh, propagate? Were you were you practically trying that as well as the Yoga Nidra? Oh, of course, all of it and uh, uh, for years, you know. So even when you get into hardcore uh, Badriano or Hindu Tantra practices, you're doing just a super high-level version of some of the same stuff. So... Um, yeah, so I, I definitely uh, have done quite a bit of that sort of thing at some point or another. Lots of Aleister Crowley, lots of, <laughs> you know, this is before anybody was really into that stuff. Now it's like, you know, you could find giant programs online that teach you, but but yeah, so Western mysticism also. Okay, that's very interesting. Let's, can we talk about that? Yeah, talk about whatever you want, man. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> Okay, that's very cool. So can we trace that a little bit? So you're getting you're reading these books, and you're, I guess, learning about all these things, just via whichever books you're picking up in that in that way that teenagers do, and trying out the techniques, you, you hit upon yoga nidra, amazing results from that. And that that laid a certain uh, breadcrumb trail, I guess, for your for your meditation later on. What about the magical side of things, uh, astral travel, uh, you know, did you do ritual magic and so on? Can you give us a bit of a, a genealogy uh, or lineage of your explorations in that particular domain? Um, it's, it's too chaotic to call it a genealogy or anything like that, but just imagine reading everything and trying everything. So I, I've, you know, done all that stuff. Um, got very seriously into Tarot. We're talking, you know, I'm like 17 or 18 or whatever, very, very into it. Um, and um, uh, into ritual magic, into Wicca, into shamanism. We're talking the early 80s here. So it was 
in like in the drinking water uh, at that point. And, um, but again, hardly any materials available compared to now. And um, at a certain point, my roommate, because uh, by that time I was in college, I was in college when I was 17, I think, or yeah. And um, uh, a roommate of mine uh, gave me a book by um, Robert Anton Wilson called Cosmic Trigger. And uh, that book <clears throat> lived up to its title in my life. So like I read that book and I was cosmically triggered. Like I, it just uh, opened me up to everything. Um, it's the kind of book that attempts on purpose to keep showing the frame, you know, the, the kind of frame you're putting around experience and keep shows you the frame and then breaks the frame and then shows you another frame and then breaks the frame and does it over and over. Try out this reality tunnel as Robert Anton Wilson and Timothy Leary call it. Try out the, that reality tunnel. And um, it's not doing it, uh, it's doing it very much on purpose, but it's not being in, exactly explicit about it. But the effect on me was exactly what it's supposed to be, which is kind of like uh, acted like a um, print version of a psychedelic. I mean, it just opened my mind tremendously, um, but it also opened my mind. The same roommate uh, gave me a bunch of acid. And so um, uh, my mind was open in another way at that point. And that was that things really drastically took off at that then. Mm. Well, you've described that time as a time where you took uh, daily large dose LSD for years. And then you also said massive, massive amounts for a long time. Yes. <laughs> so I'd like to ask you about that. Is that, is that in conjunction really with this, if we could say magical uh, operations that you were engaging in? Kind of, but by that point, I had learned something that the um, chaos magicians learned maybe at the same time or a little later, but I learned it independently. There was no such thing as chaos magic when I was doing this. And that was, I would read all these books and they had all their systems and I realized that the systems, none of them matched, right? They were all completely different than each other. And so if they were purporting to somehow be a system for working with you know, the underlying structure of reality, it was odd that none of them worked in the same way. And so very early on, this did not take a long time to get to, I was like, oh, people are just making these systems up. So uh, there's two things possible. I can make up my own system. I mean, I could go with someone else's, but if, why, why do that? I'll make up my own or, um, and that's the chaos magic direction, right? Make up your own system. Um, or that's why they call it chaos. Or, um, <clears throat> And this, this was an interesting thought. I'm like, maybe it's because all the lineages of this are broken in the West. Are there any lineages anywhere that aren't broken? And that question ended up getting me um, over a long period of time later, but ended up getting me involved with uh, Indian, uh, Indo-Tibetan uh, Tantrism. Hmm. because guess what? The lineages aren't broken, <laughs> you know, they're unbroken. And, and so there's a, a different kind of 
relationship to the material and availability, availability of the material and a little bit more of a congruence of the material. So it felt like going from our, you know, kind of reclaiming our own shattered lineages to, to um, something that was still a living tradition, still had its root, you know, solid roots in the past that had never been severed. And so that was very attractive. I'm wondering, you know, such a formative time. Um, I'm wondering what other, I suppose, if you would extract any more essence from that time, uh, things you learned or ways in which that period influenced influenced your view. Um, I could I could take this back to the Robert Anton Wilson book, um, but maybe it's just me. But it's always from that time and, and since then, uh, you will find that I never uh, am able to land on any particular worldview. And it's it might just be characterological, maybe it's some kind of character flaw, but um, try as I might sometimes, uh, I, I can't find any particular uh, conceptual worldview or map of how the universe works that seems to me final or correct. And so um, from this very early period, again, we're talking the early 80s, I just sort of uh, um, allergic to or immune to really uh, planting myself in any particular worldview. Rather, I, I'm very happy to take new ones on and really work with them and dive in and do fun stuff and understand it from the inside and all that. But eventually, eventually, its contradictions will start being really apparent and the places that it's obfuscating or not working become apparent or the ways that it, um, um, uh, whole areas that it's not serving become apparent. And then, um, and that's, at, at this point, that's not like some kind of big disappointment. It's just like, oh, okay, well, that's, that's the limits of that. And, and then we'll, we'll try something else. Um, but um, that way of understanding the world uh, or, or not understanding the world, however you want to put it, is, is fundamental. And that started then. And a real thing I used to say all the time back then, again, 18, 19, 20-year-old, as, as, as an 18 or 19 or 20-year-old was, you know, I'm trying to, to break the confines of conceptuality and try to break the, the uh, system of thought that I'm in over and over again. And that seems to have stuck. Now, of course, people will immediately point out, well, that's its own system of thought or whatever. Um, and it is when you state it like that, but living it is different. It's, it's really interesting to, um, and I think fun and beautiful and empowering to um, have that kind of like place to stand or that rug pulled out from under one over and over again, right? Which I think is a core feature of many forms of uh, spirituality even when they are putting forth a kind of worldview, um, very often they'll then undercut that worldview on purpose. So I really appreciate that. And of course, the work of my good friend, uh, David Chapman on metasystematicity uh, talks to this in a really you know high level, super brilliant uh, philosophical way.
So I um, really enjoy his work quite a bit because um, he talks about that in a way that I only intuitively understand, you know, but he's really got a whole, you know, uh, deep understanding of it. Mm. Yeah, I've actually more than one person has said to me, I read David Chapman's blog. Um, I, I'm loving it. It's great. And then I hear from them again. And then they say, he's ruined everything for me. Yeah. Uh, then he's doing a good job. <laughs> it's a, a he's a, he's a wonderful human being and also a deep practitioner and that blog um, will definitely challenge your assumptions and your worldview about everything again it's just like um, it's like a much 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 more precise and well-defined version of cosmic trigger where we just keep breaking the frame and breaking the frame and breaking the frame mm. so that's that's been a real theme there's several themes but that's that's uh, um, it's not something I'm ever trying to do. It just happens. I wonder what the out if this is perhaps the wrong way to think of it. What the outcome of of that way of working is? Uh, is there I a stated goal for about? There's not a stated goal. Like I say, I'm not trying to do it. It just happens. But the outcome is that I'm much more about practice than about philosophy. Um, even though I can, you know fairly decently talk about a lot of different philosophies, especially uh, South Asian spiritual philosophies. Um, it's not like I'm ignorant of that uh, in, a, in a brutal way. I've, I've <laughs> I could talk about it. I've read a lot of books. I've talked to a lot of people. But that I but fundamentally, that's not where the juice is, because that's just piles of concepts. The juice is in experience. The juice is in the practice. The juice is in life. And so um, he, uh, that's the real, again, there's not a goal and there's not an outcome, really. It's just uh, almost, like I say, maybe it's just a character flaw, I don't know. But I keep doing that. It just happens. And then you're back, you're out of your uh, conceptual box and back in the world. Mm. And that's always very joyous and, and beautiful, right? It's uh, incredibly beautiful. You know, it's very interesting what you're saying. And as a, as a teacher, you're well known as a, a teacher, and I think particularly well known for your one-on-one -on -one teaching work um, with meditators of various different levels. But I think a favorite um, uh, group, or I don't know if it's your favorite, but a group that seems to, I think, drawn to you in particular are people who say, well, I've got a lot of experience with meditating. You write about this in Mindful Geek, actually. Um, I've been meditating now for 5, 10, 15 years or so, and I had lots of insights and things went really well. But now nothing's happening. Uh, my, my practice is fine. It's solid. It's doing, it looks good and so on. But it's become stagnant or it's hit some sort of a plateau. It seems like this um, cosmic trigger uh, it could be an interesting way of disrupting that. I'm, I'm wondering uh, what other methods you use. But actually, what I was thinking was when someone comes to you and they, they say, okay, Michael, I, I've uh, read this book or I've seen this. Uh, resource, I'd like to get, say, stream entry, the way this person defines it. Or, okay, I'd like to get non-dual awakening. I've been influenced by this and this teacher or so on, or, you know, whatever's the case. Okay, I'm looking for, um, you know, I want to get the, into Turia or something like this, you know, etc. People coming to you with, they'll have presumably often some sort of conceptual orientation aligned or influenced by, to some degree, mainline religious systems and, and I guess also other maverick teachers of 
of, of time. Do you? I'm going to have to remove that word maverick from my. <laughs> well, I took it to mean unlineaged in the sense. Of, that's that's correct. Yeah, that's how I'm using it. That you're not anyway. like you're not claiming lineage authorization from any particular source, right? Which is so often correct. done. Correct. Yeah, I thought that was what that was the point of the word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's I think uh, a correct definitional use of it. I'd certainly say, and it sounds cool as well. But um, do you? I suppose offer a particular method or route? Um, do you say, okay, we're going to get you enlightened in this way or that way? Or do you, are you able to shape shift when you're working with people into whatever their particular goals are, even if they're quite specific in terms of philosophy or meditation? Um, maybe a person in the morning you work with has got a really rather different, maybe even oppositional view to the person in the afternoon. How, when you work with people, do you, do you shape shift like that? Or do you say, um, you know, I, I have achieve, achieved or attained this and I can, I can guide you towards what I know. How do you play it? Um, I shapeshift, basically. I mean, the number one question is, what did they want? You know, because I don't think there's one right thing that people are supposed to want. Um, and so, uh, depending on what they want, uh, I might be able to help them with that. And if I can't, I certainly can point them to someone who can. Um, very often, uh, um, what people want is something that I would consider more psychologically accessible or, you know, they, they essentially think they're going to get something out of meditation that I think they can get in a, in a different way, maybe more effectively. So I will point them in that direction. Also, if they are uh, very, very, let's say, um, um, I want to use a positive term here, very enthusiastic about a particular tradition and, and exactly done in the traditional way, then I'll show them, you know, who they can talk to, who will be like, this is the one right way, and this is how we do it, because that's what they want. And I think that's cool. Like, get into it. That's great. Um, but for the people who, you know, they do have particular goals, and I feel those goals are, uh, accessible through meditation and uh, they have the kind of, like maybe they've tried several different lineages over many years and uh, they're, so they're a little uh, open about working in different ways, then then we'll, then I'll start working with them and do uh, ask a lot of questions to figure out what what I think the, the the inroad is the most effective doorway will be and then we start working there and, and just iterate hmm. you know but for me that's really you said in the morning one and the afternoon another it's more like every hour a different one you know um people uh, with very different worldviews and um very different needs and and different goals and different practice history and uh, different context and and oftentimes uh, different cultures and languages and all that and so um, if there's, you know, there's, there's being good at meditation and there's being good at teaching anything, right? Those are two different skills. And um, in, in terms of the teaching department, I feel like uh, I get a lot of feedback that I'm good at putting things in a way that the person will understand, you know, um, like speaking someone's language. Um, and uh, that makes it really great for working one-on-one. -on -one. That makes it a little harder to talk to a group where 
you know, every all those different worldviews and different um, needs and different backgrounds and different practice histories and stuff need to all be addressed. I, I do that, of course, but it's interesting because it's a little more uh, challenging. It means I have to, um, you know, kind of put forth a system that everyone's working with um, that that I want them to work with. And so, you know, I'm able to do that and that's fun. And um, um, at least some people get a lot out of it. Uh, and at the same time, probably the most powerful work is one-on-one. -on -one. And I think that's supported historically. I think most, you know, teaching relationships are, you know, a direct one-on-one -on -one or a very small group to the teacher. That's, that's, that's where um, if there's any, if there's anything to the concept of, you know, transmission, and I don't even mean that spiritually, like I got a certain kind of transmission from my college German teacher, you know, I mean, he just brought a certain kind of brilliance to what he was teaching. And I, and I just took every course he taught to, to just take that in. Um, uh, so in other words, I don't mean some kind of magical transmission. I just mean literally kind of uh, getting inside the mind of what it's like to do that. That's done one-on-one -on -one and that's teacher to student. And again, I think that's pretty traditional really. So for being a, a not a good traditionalist, I'm doing something that I think is pretty traditional even though it's being done over a cell phone. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. You know, you've emphasized um, the really massive amounts of LSD, lot, big doses and almost daily uh, for a long time, years, in fact. Um, and you've talked about s some of the positive consequences of that, mind opening uh, consequences and so on, and insights uh, that have come from that to some extent. Do you think, looking back, there are any negative um, consequences of taking that much LSD over such a sustained period of time? No, not for me. I mean, for other people, for sure. You know, I mean, uh, everyone has a different chemical makeup and psychological, you know, um, system and, the, and their brains are, everyone's brain is different. So it's not like I'm recommending it or saying it wouldn't, wouldn't be bad for another person. Uh, because I did see lots of people have bad experiences. So I would never say something like that as a general statement. Please don't hear me say that. But for me, it was just entirely positive. <laughs> and I loved it. And, uh, you know, um, probably the worst, the worst outcome is like some really bad uh, uh, satorial expressions, <laughs> you know, some really stupid clothing and, and dumb outfits and so on. Uh, it's probably the worst you could say about it. <laughs> That's very funny indeed. So after that, you, you graduated, you moved to Japan to teach English. I moved um, to Japan to move to Japan, yeah, um, and just get into a really different, just do something really different. And uh, it just happened to be that in the mid eighties in Japan, you could show up as a native speaker of English and get a job that paid very well by American depressed 1980s standards. Um, and uh, for someone like me who actually had a, a degree, a college degree in a language, 
capacity because I, my college degree is in German literature. So let's talk Kafka. Um, uh, it was easy to get good paying work and have a great time. It was a, it was a continuous wild party going on in Japan at that time. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And th it was there that you had what you've described, I think, is one of, if not the most significant awakening experiences at age 24. Could, could you talk about that time? Um, the, the particular experience or just being there? Well, perhaps one could lead to the other. I'm yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, it was really fun. And uh, there's like a wonderful expat community at that time. A lot of the uh, expats in Japan back then were people who had started traveling in the late 60s or early 70s around Asia kind of uh, and ended up by the mid 80s in Japan. And they'd been gone, you know, gone the whole time. Um, from England or Canada or the States or whatever, UK in one way or another, uh, Australia. And um, so it's just an incredibly fun and interesting group of people. And I did, uh, I had been taking martial arts in America for many years with a really serious teacher in the Shorinru Okinawan uh, karate style. My teacher, Iha Sensei, was an Okinawan man who I uh, really respected and um, uh, learned from him for many years. And then, when, so part of what I took up in Japan was uh, a, a, not the same, but a similar style of karate. And um, did that for several years there quite intensely. It was really, really, really fun, super intense training. Uh, and uh, and teaching English and wildly partying. Like back in college, especially during the LSD days, I did not drink. I just was anti-alcohol in every way, uh, which is hilarious since, you know, obviously I was doing this, this other chemical quite a bit, but I felt like, um, you know, in the, in the, in the 1980s milieu at college, other people are doing, they're mainly drinking, there's people doing, heroin and morphine, there's people, all that stuff. And I just, all of that to me was just completely no way. That's just not anything I'm interested in. But psychedelics, yes, with capital letters. Um, but none of that's available in Japan. And uh, furthermore, it was just a different scene. And so uh, in that society with those folks, uh, it was kind of more of a bar situation, go out to the bar and, and talk and share stories and play music. And, and it was just fun, really, really fun. Uh, but one, one of my friends there that I met at the English school was a guy from uh, University of um, Wisconsin at Madison. And he was really, really into Buddhism. And, um, and we had a lot to talk about. He was also into the beat the beats and beat poetry and knew a lot about that, which I did too. I had read literally everything. And, um, and so uh, he, how did this work? Um, a friend of mine ended up sending me some bladder acid, which I had not touched any in a long time because it just wasn't available in Japan. And um, uh, so me and this friend of mine in Japan, uh, one night decided we were going to do that. And what I didn't understand is that the bladder they had sent me was much more powerful than I expected a single one to be. 
that's why they sent it. They're like, you know, Michael will like this. Um, so it was like extra walloping. And um, there was something about uh, probably a mixture of not having done it in a long time and being in Japan and being with someone of like mind and being out in the mountains all night uh, uh, with various, uh, you know, the woods and the trees and the mountains and the forests and watching the sunrise and all that. Anyway, um, it was quite an intense experience. Uh, and again, I'm saying intense from the viewpoint of someone who had done a lot of psychedelics. So um, let's just say really intense. And by, um, by the next day, uh, I was a changed human being and uh, took me several months to even kind of um, settle back down and actually more than a year before I was in basically a highly altered state, very, very altered state for about a year afterwards, uh, very positive altered state um, and uh, with no chemical support for that whole year, you know, it was just uh, the results of that. And, and basically that was, um, that was the major shift in life. Nothing has ever even remotely been the same since then. So, and even my dearest friends were like, you're, you're a different person. What, ha what has become of you in a positive sense? I mean, I was, I was much happier and much more fun to be around and a lot more, uh, loose and open and joyous all the time. And um, so it wasn't, it wasn't like a bad thing, but it was certainly very noticeable. And that's just, it's just never gone back. Looking back at that now, is all the experience you've had, of course, across so many different traditions and ways of describing these sorts of things. How would you describe that now? If you had to kind of break it down or so, what, what was, what did you experience? Um, what, could it be categorized or labeled as, um, uh, and, and what were its consequences? Uh, aside from, of course, loosening up, much more positive, much more happy, it seems there were perhaps more profound depths to it than that. Yeah, um, I'm not going to put a particular label on it, because, um, you know, it's outside of tradition and, and labels go with traditions and so on. Um, but uh, what I will say is that, um, the experience itself for most of it was, uh, it started out really um, amazing and then uh, became hellish for many, many hours, extreme hellish. And, and I'd gone through that before sometimes, but this was at a, a different level of intensity. And um, uh, eventually at a certain point, um, when things were so bad for so long, uh, for hours of like the worst experience you can imagine having. Um, uh, I just, and I'm, I'm not even going into the details here. It would take hours to really unpack it, but um, I had sort of a, um, something that reminds me of like to practice or something. And it was, it was just like, um, to put it in kind of mundane terms, like, okay, this is a living hell and um, uh, 
And I think if I let go into this, I'm going to die in maybe even worse than die, like be annihilated. Um, and and uh, I resisted that, resisted that. And then I said, um, uh, okay, let's just be annihilated. And so I sat down, so like dawn, you know, on a mountain in Japan, I just sat down in a full lotus posture and, um, and settled in to meditate and just said, okay, annihilate me. I'm ready. And, and it did. So um, that's the easiest way to describe it. But that's not the, uh, you know, it's not a heaven realm kind of vision. It was definitely through uh, the via negativa dark side hell realm version. Although at that point, coming back from the total annihilation, um, it, it did flip into kind of a ongoing vision that went on for a long time of um, uh, being, you know, uh, like a pure land kind of vision where everything's made of jewels and mantras and stuff. But anyway, the big moment was the just let it, okay, annihilation is, is good at this point and letting go of that. And so what do I think happened there? Um, again, I don't want to put it in, into any particular framework, but certainly those issues around fear of death uh, were resolved and anything to do with a sense of, you know, who I am or the sense of self or all that was just utterly shattered in a way that has never reconstituted like back into that smaller sense of self and, you know, so stuff like that, that that's the, the, the sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of thing that went on there. Again, we'd have to really spend many hours to unpack it, and I never do that. <laughs> People's trip reports are, are you know, uh, largely personal, but the important, the important stuff is, um, for me, what I found out is, uh, you know, even surrendering into a really negative sense of total annihilation. If you really do it, you can't pretend. You gotta just say, okay, I'm ready and, and fully give up. Uh, that, that can be the best thing that ever happened to you. It certainly was for me. Wow, that's quite amazing. After that, um, Can you say something about ma mantras and jewels and, and I think you said and stuff like that? Does, well, do you, you ever read something like the Avamtaka? Um, I'm not saying it right. Avamtaka. Gosh, what is the name of it? It's over here. Anyway, um, I'm I'm uh, messing up my Sanskrit. That's un unforgivable. Avamtaka Sutra. No, that's not it. Somebody correct me. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. It's called the. Uh, um, Jewel Ornament Sutra. And page after page of that is sounds like a word for word of description of what I was literally seeing. You know, so every every object in in the world is not an object. It's just, but it looks like it's made of jewels. And every sound is not a sound. It's a mantra that's being intoned. And you can I can actually see the mantras and you know, uh, lots of that for a long time. 
you saw the mantras in terms of their script or in terms of sort of light or uh, pulses of some sort? What, what was the visual experience of the mantras? Sometimes it was script. Sometimes it was uh, um, every so-called object is just these unfolding onion skins of mantras that are reciting uh, or jewels or both, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Iterating, 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 iterating. So, um, and each person was, um, is just a sacred light um, moving around, pretending to be a person. And even that sacred light is, is itself not a, th you know, that kind of, that kind of vision. When you saw the scripts, were they in the, so to say, writing alphabets of the source languages, or did you see them in English, or how, how did that work? Uh, all of, you know, of course, I'm aware of the source languages and so on, but it would, it, it was um, a visionary experience. So if I try to put it into words, I would say it was all of them. Mm. This is so fascinating. I have two more questions about it. Number one, when one thinks of heavenly realms and pure lands and so on, uh, I just want to interrupt and say, you know, it's it's just an experience. So I, it's not like I look back at that and think, oh, that experience of a heaven realm is is something, you know, I'm going to hang on to. That's why you see me kind of going, eh, you know, is this and that, because um, it's not like I look back at that and go, oh, that was the real world. You know, it's just an experience. Hmm. It was a cool experience. I'm glad I had it, but like kind of fetishizing the details for me is is not the important part. It's like one can can really just um, uh, have those kind of experiences and they're transformative. And, and what's important about it is the transformation. Right, which was going to be my second of the two questions. So feel free to pass on the first one if it feels like- Oh, it's okay. I mean, I, it, yeah, go for it. Well, the first one was uh, entities. So, of course, your your perception of objects <clears throat> and of people transformed. It seems from what you're saying, you're describing that. Were, were you also? Um, did you also have experiences of, see, otherworldly entities or other dimensional entities? Uh, the sorts of things that are also reported in, in in these sorts of mystical experiences, classically speaking. Yes, but that was not new for me. So. Uh, you know, that, that was very common. So um, um, that, yes, there was quite a bit of that, but that did not seem that unusual. <laughs> What's your experience then at that time and before with, with entities then? What sort of things were you seeing? Um, just think of the panoply. So, you know, is it is it a, a deity? Is it a bodhisattva? Is it an angel? Is it an elf? Is it a, a, some kind of um, metatronic? Be, you know, who knows? All that sort of stuff. Um, certainly had a lot of experience with that kind of thing and not well high. So um, whether that's, you know, we could, we could say, wow, he's really open to that stuff. Um, or we could say, wow, he really you know, was mentally ill as a child or whatever, even though of course I was never diagnosed with anything at all and seemed pretty normal to most people. Um, however, we want to frame that, that openness to, you know, other realms and other beings uh, has always been there. So yeah, still there. 
I was that's what I was going to say. It's still there. Has it changed at all over the decades? Um, not really. I get, you know, it's uh, it's certainly normalized to the point where I don't. Um, uh, it's not a big deal. You know, it's like, oh yeah, there's some stuff happening. That's cool. Um, and it's, it might be wonderful, you know, uh, but at the same time, I understand that that's pretty unusual and most people aren't having that experience. And I certainly wouldn't think that that's an important experience for other people. Like I'm not training anyone to do that in any way. I don't, I wouldn't even know how. It's just my mind works that way. Hmm. Well, that's fascinating. You know, speaking of training, um, I recently interviewed uh, Beth Upton, an English woman who um, was a nun for 10 years, actually, five of which she spent, the first five of which she spent under quite close instruction of um, Pauk Seodol. Yes. She, she discussed in that interview, uh, which is out now, actually, opening of the wisdom eye, that they had uh, methods and techniques to open this wisdom eye, which is the means that they have of seeing these sorts of realms that evidently you were able able to see quite naturally entities and heaven realms and all this sort of things. It's quite interesting. See, seems there are, of course, you're aware of that, but I, I'm, for the sake of conversation, bringing it up, um, it seems there are also methods to, if, if one's interested, to be able to perceive these realms. Um, yeah, although do the methods work for most people? I don't know. They do work for some people. I suspect they work for people who are already kind of that way to begin with. Um, but um, uh, I'm not sure why you would want to. You know, I mean, I, of course, I'm aware of what all the answers to that question are. But for me, um, it's not like beings in other realms, whether they even exist or not, have uh, are any smarter than us or have more information than us or can, you know, it's um, to take kind of a, uh, to just in interject one Buddhist view. It's like, yeah, they're just li living in those realms too. And, and, and they have their difficulties as well. So um, it, it's, uh, uh, there, it's a lot of work to do those kind of practices and you have to really spend a tremendous amount of time uh, and what do you really get out of it? Are you getting actual insight? Are you, is it changing your life in a positive way? Are you better at um, loving your partner and your family and being with other people? Are you helping the world in any way that's better because of it? I don't know. I kind of doubt it. I think it's, if it's there, it's interesting. And that kind of, um, you know, interacting with, these beings as persons and all that is can be is natural for me and, and fun and interesting but um to make that like an explicit goal and do heavy duty practices seems like kind of like um, spiritual tourism or something even though i've done those heavy practices and all that so i don't mean for other people for me now mm -hmm. uh it seems like that. Mm. So I'm not criticizing another person doing it, but I would just be like, why would I do that? <laughs> you know, uh, uh, there's a lot of other cool and interesting stuff one could be doing. Now, again, if it's just natural for you and it's 
a cool exploration, great, go do that. But what I what I definitely would not want is people coming to me wanting to learn something like that. Right. Just be like, no way. <laughs> right. <laughs> not enough. interesting. Be much more interested in, you know, uh, the that you know the entity stuff is classical, of course. It's supported in all the classical texts, but and so there it is, you know, but I'd be more interested in other parts of, of uh, classical text type liberation and then awakening and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, which uh, even those beings want. Yeah. Well, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> I'm a bit of a muggle myself in these sorts of realms, but yeah, very fascinating. Um, okay. Well, I, I imagine after an experience like that, you'd almost have to learn to walk again presumably so much of your um responses to your environment and stimulus would be different maybe not um, i'm curious what the integration so as it's sometimes called um period would was like after that uh, but i'm also curious how it was you came back to the states then and got involved in um speaking of as you've described magical weirdism uh the uh, kundalini yoga tradition basically uh, based on my own meditation and practices um and uh I found myself having a lot of energy experiences, some of which were really uncomfortable. And um, uh, I knew that there were uh, groups that worked with stuff like that uh, and uh, ran into someone who knew a particular uh, Hindu Tantra guru who was very, very involved with uh, Kundalini work. And um, so I went and uh, basically moved heaven and earth to like, went through a bunch of difficult circumstances to make sure I met her and started working with her and her guru uh, for many years. And I, you know, that was a long time ago and I still know them and still interact with them and love them. So uh, it was, that was how I got involved in Kundalini stuff because they started they were able to help me work with the energy experiences I was having mm. and that that was much more formal speaking of pukka that's super pukka tantrism like very right hand you know totally pure brahminical stuff you know so uh a, a really the absolute opposite of the kind of milieu I was used to just like sex and drugs and rock and roll and magic you know Mm. onion juice and underground caves yeah <laughs> so yeah that's a fascinating period uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you're uh, reluctant to name the lineage and the teachers not at all uh, the it's it's just a very tiny lineage that no one ever hear, has heard of um my, the, my direct teacher was Anandi, anandima people think i'm saying anandamoyama who's ultra famous but no i'm just saying sri anandima and uh her teacher uh uh, Tihan Yogi Sri Madhusudan Dasji, who's no one's ever heard of, um, but uh, he was a, a Indian yogi, who, the kind who you know ran away from home when he was thirteen and and was on the road as a wandering sadhu for his entire life. Um, and uh, when I met him, he was well over a hundred years old, and uh, and they you know they were they're the kind of people, uh, and it wasn't just me. Do dozens and dozens and dozens of people, maybe hundreds at this point, could you know confirm this experience. But they're the kind of people you go in the room 
with, especially Dhyanayogi, when I would meet him in India, you just go in the room and you, you're instantly uh, having some kind of super intense uh, meditation experience or hypervisionary experience or incredibly normal experience that's like um, tremendously meaningful and captivating and so on. So uh, especially given that I had this kind of um, experience of well, there's people who say something's going on, but then, you know, if I do this molecule or I do these things, something really happens. But when I went and worked with them, something was really happening, hugely transformative uh, experiences very often. And wow. so uh, I was like, wow, they're, they're, they're real. And so I started working with them. Can you give a sense of the sorts of practices that you were doing? What was the sort of, uh, I suppose, practice methods and so on that you were engaged with in, at that time with, with those teachers? And perhaps um, also a sense of the sorts of experiences you had. The practices would be very obvious and common and uh, to anyone who's been involved in, in Tantrism, either Hindu Tantrism or Vajrayana. So, you know, mantras and chakras and energy and uh, pranayama and yoga postures, lots of recita recitation of Sanskrit sutras, lots of meditation. I think the um, uh, most unusual part for a lot of Hindu Tantra um, was that the meditation was firmly non-dual. We were, you know, you'd use a focus object for just a minute or two and then let go into you know, space. Um, and it, it was uh, uh, not that kind of like super focused meditation, but lots of visualization, lots of mantras, lots of chakras, lots of body, uh, body energy work. Um, and then again, like I say, it had this Brahminical element where, you know, we're doing huge fire ceremonies with hundreds of people and lots of pujas and lots of actual just worship. So a whole kind of what we might call dualistic side as well. And I got trained in all that so I can, you know, do fire ceremonies. So I can lead a fire ceremony and I can, um, you know, do jyotish really good at Jyotish, you know? So uh, Hindu astrology, all of which is part of the, all this stuff. So that's that's what that tradition is like. I think over the years, they uh, it's transformed slightly. I'm not, uh, even though they live nearby and I see them and so on, I'm not super involved in doing any of the traditional practices at this point. Hmm. And what were you doing underground and for 30 to 40 days at a time? Um, what, what was just that what I just described? Mm. That's what you do when you're, you know, in in a in a underground room or in a cave or a basement or whatever you want to call it, you know, um, uh, doing practices. So we're doing mantras and meditation and and pranayama and postures and and energy work and a lot of um, um, recitation and so on. Very, very, very wonderful stuff. I loved it. Looking back now, what what would you say? You know, you, you've said you, you've said before you're able to go into into worldviews and and take on worldviews and really run with them. But then eventually, um, you 
you move beyond them or you uh not, not derogatory sense you know you you sort of go you, you go i don't know how how to put it exactly um you uh yeah you, you don't land there for, for permanently i think you said so looking back there and coming out of that situation what do you think you know we talked about the essence of your teenage and college insights what what do you think uh, did you was the essence was the essence of what of what you took out of that situation or what or what that situation took out of you yeah i'm not sure i can reduce it to an essence but i can talk about some of the stuff um one of the things was being you know highly um you know, super into early 80s American Midwestern punk rock world. Um, one, the whole scene is very, very cynical, very um, uh, atheist, very uh, skeptical and sarcastic. I was uh, very into super sarcastic skepticism, withering sarcasm. And uh, yet, I will say, it, it also still was close enough to the hippie area, hippie era and Midwestern enough that everyone was still nice to each other. It wasn't like some kind of, you know, beating anybody up or anything like that. It was a very, very fun scene, but it was super skeptical and atheist and so on. Um, uh, I would say that uh, working with uh, my Hindu Tantra teachers, they wouldn't call it Tantra because they think in America that's too associated with sexuality and, and they're just not about that at all. So they just call it Kundalini uh, uh, meditation, but it's Tantrism technically. And um, so working with those teachers, um, it really... Uh, removed like a kind of uh, tough rind from my heart and blasted my heart open, um, reminded me of, of just the presence of total love and um, really deepened that sense of love. And a lot of it was dualistic. So there's a lot of love of God or various gods and really, and, and so, you know, it's very devotional. And so that was quite a antidote to this other side, which was so um, kind of defended. And so it just melted uh, all that defense away entirely, and then went even deeper and deeper and opened up uh, my heart further than I could have imagined. You know, sometimes, uh working with say the chakras and the energy body uh, the you know the energetic channels and so on is sometimes said to uh, access karmic traces etc um even traumas perhaps uh, i'm curious if uh, given your background uh, before that point if you found that to be the case did you find um the practices had an effect on say stored trauma in your body or um, epigenetic uh, material, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When you're starting to, you know, open the open the different uh, channels and chakras and so on through those sorts of practices. Um, I think it had some of that effect, uh, but remember, I had done a lot of psychedelics, including you know, really pure MDMA, 
quite a bit, like huge doses, doses that people never do now. Um, and so a tremendous amount of trauma had been healed that way already, um, uh, honestly. But uh, the energy body work releases so much stuff. And uh, oftentimes that can be a little, as people report, can be a little much. Got to be pretty careful with pranayama and visualization and so on, because it's, it is so powerful. So you can end up you know, in various uncomfortable states of mind if you're, if you're not careful. But yeah, it, it certainly, uh, uh, in my experience, released traumas and, and opened up new, like I say, just opened the heart in a way that uh, had not been opened before. Hmm. And um, introduced me to the, the joyous, wonderful part of dualistic devotion, you know, and just melting into that over and over, which is uh, kind of, especially in a lot of the areas I work in now, kind of looked down upon. And, uh, and I'm like, you know, uh, you're also worried about getting out of your mind, and yet you're doing it in this very, very, you know, kind of mental way. Uh, what about some beauty? What about some love? What about, you know, uh, devotion, even if you don't believe in anything, you can still practice devotion. And, and it's, it's just a wonderful direction. It's really certainly uh, made me permanently kind of, uh, my heart is permanently kind of gushy. You know? I could imagine that such a orientation would quite radically transform also the way you relate to people. Um, relationships, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm I'm curious what you noticed there, and also I'm curious about, you know, I'm looking here at my uh, the notes I made for our conversation, and the next name up is Shinzen, right? I'm not sure how, if we'll get if we'll get much into that uh, on this. Shinzen's occasion. awesome. That's all I have to say. <laughs> okay, yeah. You've talked about you've talked about your relationship with Shinzen about many places. He's but, such a um, good guy. Yeah, very. You know, knowing his life and knowing him inside out that's someone who is very trustworthy yeah well my point was that shinsen sometimes talks about an awkward intermediary zone when you're going from being closed but you're not quite open yet and so this you're not shielded against the slings and arrows uh, but at the same time you're not so open that they pass through you and so you, you of course know what i'm talking about um did you experience anything like that how did you what i really if i get down to it what i'm trying to say is how did you calibrate your personal intimate relationships uh, in particular throughout this period and in general? Oh, I think I probably fucked most of them up. You know, I mean, I, you know, it's like uh, the way you're describing it sounds so intentional and careful and stuff. And, and I'm more like crashing around, uh, you know, blind in the, in, the, in the underbrush most of the time. I would say at this point, it's a little, it's more stable. You can ask my wife if how much of an asshole I am, and you know, it's like he's, she'll say probably something like he's not too bad most of the time. Uh, so uh, it, I, I'm not claiming to have some kind of uh, um, perfect ability to interact with other human beings, but I will say I've always liked other people and I just like them more. That's the biggest change. I just gener generally, genuinely like people 
most of the time. And so uh, no matter how much I mess it up, I, 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 I'm not trying to, and I do come back and try to fix it and so on. So that's, that's the best you're going to get for me on that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, that's so fascinating. Thank you, Michael. You know, um, we're, we're getting close to the end of our time uh, together. Uh, but it's been so fascinating. I'd love to have you on again in the future. Um, there's so much we could discuss. In particular, I'd really like to talk about reversing the stack and your particular approach to non the non-dual uh, aspect. On your YouTube channel, uh, Michael Taft, it's called on YouTube, uh, you have lots and lots of guided meditations, which are, I think, quite widely and popularly used. And so I'd like to... I think discuss... there's, about a, there's about like a, almost 200 hours of yeah. free guided meditation on there. Yeah. And one often hears that one often says, well, I was doing a Michael Taft meditation and it's a sort of um, I think it's become a bit part of the furniture for online um, spiritual secrets. At least I hear I hear about it all the time. So well, that's, uh, of that's course, good news. That makes me happy. Yeah. So, of course, I'm going to include links to that YouTube channel or you can just search Michael Taft um, and, and your website and so on. Um, so I'd like to talk about that. You know, I'd like to talk about your particular way of navigating the, that non-dual material. I, I think it's very interesting indeed. Um, and there's some other things. I'd like to talk a bit about your time at Sounds True, touch on that maybe a little, where you were an editorial director for a long time and you saw all kinds of spiritual teachers um, coming and going, examining their material, I presume working with them and s seeing how the sausage- Working with made. them very closely, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to know some sausage, some sausage making, uh, you know, uh, stories if you have any interesting ones and yeah of course your relationship with Shinzen which you know which you, you give him a lot of credit and speak very highly of him but we have some questions about that so anyway um this has been so fascinating that was my petition for a sequel uh Michael but sure. we'll see oh, of course anytime oh splendid sorry right. sorry we had uh we wasted some time with my internet cramping out at the beginning so uh apologies not at all it's been just so fascinating and uh, I look forward to the next time uh, Michael Taft, thank you very much. Uh, Steve, when are we going to get, uh, for the viewers, an uh, outside look at your houseboat? It's so fascinating from the inside. An outside, yes, I could, you're right. That would be interesting. I want to see a pan, a pan video of what, what your houseboat looks like. That's not a bad idea. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll think about doing that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Michael Taft, thank you very much. Thanks, man. Have a great one. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.